Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have a chat. Uh, this is audio only, but uh, it's good to see that we both have a very similar appearance. We've, we've gone the older man, sort of bald head, bearded look. Uh, I think it's quite handsome. I think thanks, Richard, and thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got to you've got to own it, don't you? You that's, do. Yeah, that's the way to go with these things. Absolutely. I, I think uh, I've been a number one on the first of the month man for about I don't know fifteen years now, and uh, it uh, it works well for me. Well, let's get started and just talk to us, Matt, about your current professional responsibilities. Yeah, so my uh, my day job at the moment is the chief executive of Keystone Training Group. Um, so that's a company with a, a group of it is a group of training companies, as the name suggests. Um, and most of what I spend my time on is is really probably two things. There's kind of a, an operational piece where we're you know, engaging with staff, uh, working out our delivery plans, monitoring how our training is going, and working with clients. Um, and then there's there's kind of the growth strategic piece for the group. So we're a, a company that's looking to grow um, and is growing organically and by acquisition. Uh, so there's a whole piece around how do we actually kind of set the company up to take forward? How do we grow? In what way? And then what are all the things the business needs to be able to support in that sort of growth environment as we as we evolve? Okay, great. And when you say you're the CEO, you're also uh, the managing director or the owner of the the uh, the three companies under this umbrella of Keystone, or how does that work? Yeah, so I'm I'm a director on the board of the company, um, as well as the CEO. Uh, I we've got a, a shareholding group of which I'm one of the major shareholders of the company, um, and then I'm also kind of officially a, a director on each of our subsidiary businesses. As right, well. and so the other directors are made up of the uh, original owners of the entities that have been acquired. Uh, yeah, so we um, really myself and my business partner Tom are the are primary shareholders of the group. Um, then we've uh, managed to secure the services of a really experienced independent chairperson, and uh, he has a small small shareholding in the company as well. Um, he's uh, you know a lot a lot smarter and uh, a lot more experienced than we are. So and he's done something. Uh, you know, he's taken a business where we want to go in a similar but different industry. So um, really really helpful in terms of our, our plans going forward. Okay, fantastic, and so. Keystone is uh, the umbrella or the parent company, and then sitting underneath that, you've got three fairly distinct brands. That's correct. So we, we took a, you know, we, we did sort of spend a bit of time thinking through the best way to do it, but ultimately we took a house of brands approach to, to what we're trying to do. So Keystone is the essentially the parent company or the, the head company. And then um, underneath that, we've got at the moment three operating RTOs. Uh, who run their own brands. So that's um, Vocational Training Services, uh, Train West, and Opportune Professional Development. And you're based in Perth, and I understand that two of those brands are head officed in Perth. And then the third brand, uh, the one you've more recently acquired, is head officed in Sydney. Yeah, that's correct. So um, so our journey's been, uh, so Vocational Training Services was the original original company um, that, we, that we started with. And uh 
Then we acquired um, the controlling interest in Train West uh, just over two years ago. Uh, both VTS and Train West, Perth headquartered, pretty WA focused, uh, not not exclusively, but fairly WA centric in their in, in what they do. Uh, and then in October last year, um, 2023, we acquired Opportunity Professional Development, who are Sydney headquartered, mm-hmm. and they have staff all over the country. So, so that's been pretty exciting for us, going from really a, you know, um, a West, you know, a fairly large West Australian group of operations, but, but kind of locally focused. And now we've got the ability to really have a, a national footprint in what we're what we're delivering and who we can work with. Excellent, and. Certainly, other than your more recent acquisition, been fairly mining industry centric. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Train West is is very resource centric, and, and to be honest, it's um, it's pretty hard not to be when you when you're in WA. You know, I mean, there's a lot a lot going on mining wise over here, and and even um, like our companies who would not consider themselves to be mining, as in our, our clients. Uh, they kind of are to a degree usually, mm-hmm. you know, they're usually only one sort of step removed. So you might be a service provider to to a mining company or you might be a logistics provider to a contractor who's supporting a, a mine site. So, so uh, yeah, VTS, um, a little less so. So VTS is probably a bit more focused around hospitality, retail and some leadership and business. Train West very much um, training and assessment qualifications, uh, a lot of work health and safety related um, training products. And most of those things directed towards the mining industry, not exclusively, but that just is where the, the core of the work is. And I suppose also reflecting your own professional background, because uh, you know you've got a lot of mining industry experience in your history too. Yeah, this is um, this is career number two for me, Richard. So uh, <laughs> you know, I'm actually having a lot of fun with. But no, I, I started off. Um, so I'm an engineer by uh, by qualification. Um, Sort of did the did the four years at uni, and then probably only did engineering stuff for a couple of years, which is the reality. And then I was into operations and managing people and budgets and all the stuff that actually don't teach you when you do a do a technical degree like that. But uh, yeah, had uh, eighteen years in the resources sector across um, mainly WA. Uh, we had a bit of time in South Australia, uh, running a mine out there that now services um, what's now known as the Liberty Steel Steelworks out in Wyala. Mm-hmm. Um, but my yeah, my career was very much kind of operational. Um, yeah. Yeah, leading either parts of mine sites. Then, as I became more senior, running mining operations, and uh, and that kind of culminated with um, I, I sort of worked on the service, the contractor service side of the industry. So, you know, providing services to mining companies, and then ultimately ended up yeah, working for BHP. Um, and uh, my my last skip with them was running the uh, board and rail operations up in uh, up in Headland. Uh huh. Were you born and bred in uh, Perth? Uh, no, I was born in the UK. Okay, uh, but moved over as um, sort of pretty young young child. I think I was four or five when we came over. So right. kind of went, grew up in Perth, went to school in Perth, um, did my sort of my university studies in Perth, and then uh, and then we've moved around a fair bit, sort of um, during my mining time, which you, which you tend to do. Uh, but Perth's our natural home. I mean, that's where our yeah, my wife uh, Lauren and I, that's our both sets of parents are here, and um, so it's the place we always end up coming back to. Uh huh. And what uh, brought you to Perth originally? Were your parents uh, involved in the mining-related industry as well, or how did you end up here? No, not not at all. So, um, so mum and mum and dad were, uh, yeah, obviously lived in the UK, and I think it was just you know listening to particularly dad talk about it these days. I think it was just a tough time over there. Um, so this is kind of the sort of the Maggie Thatcher era, Britain, um, and it was yeah a difficult time, hard to get ahead, you know, mm-hmm. and then. Mum and Dad just saw Australia as this great opportunity. Um, 
to have a like quite a different life and good opportunity for their kids and uh and that prompted the move so they literally came over with you know just their stuff and no job to go to and all that kind of thing and started from scratch uh but uh no so that i i have um interesting i, I have no family connection in mining and, and that's not unusual nowadays like there's quite a lot of first generation mining people when you just because they're the opportunities that that sector presents but at the time i started which was back in the late 90s um i, I you know the questions i'd get is oh, was your dad in mining and the answer was no um and then it's like oh are you are you from a farm and i was like uh, no and then it was going to look at your finance level why are you here <laughs> it's like I don't know. I just found it interesting. I mean, it was, um, and this was sort of before the, you know, what's, you know, the big boom, I suppose, in the in the mining sector, particularly in WA. But um, I just found it really interesting. You're playing big toys and um, interesting lifestyle, and uh, and probably the opportunity at that time so you could kind of accelerate your career if you're prepared to go away and work hard in the bush. You could accelerate your career pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, my parents are both English, although my dad's passed away now, and uh, I moved to Australia when I was four as well. So. Uh... Uh, we share that in common. And so when you were at high school, was mining the career that you were excited about or did was that what you wanted to do when you grew up? Uh, look, a little bit. I, I was definitely interested in, in high school um, and I, I sort of read read the sort of the mining monthly magazine and that kind of thing. Um, but I, at the time, uh, in, in Perth anyway, if you wanted to go and do a mining engineering degree, you, you had to go to Kalgoorlie. And uh, for those that don't know where Kalgoorlie is, it's about 700 kilometres inland from Perth, um, pure mining town. Yeah, I didn't know, you know, 17 years old, I, was, I wasn't I was sure enough about it to want to go and do that and, and move over there. Uh, it's a bit easier nowadays. You can do your first two years in Perth and then you go to Kalgoorlie for the, the last two years of your degree. So so I, I instead sort of took a path of like, like the kind of just keeps your options open sort of path. So I, I did a, a civil engineering degree where you could kind of put some mining stuff in there and then mm-hmm. I could always sort of move that way later if I wanted to without committing to that particular path. And uh, as you say, I mean, this is your second career now. So very mining at BHP uh, up until about 2016. So what, what was the uh, catalyst for change? Look, um, a, a few different things, right? There wasn't really any any one thing, but we were, um, uh, my wife and I, and uh, my daughter was born in Port Hedland, so we were living in Port Hedland for he- heading into, I said to Lauren, um, oh, look, we'll go for two to three years, and we were heading into year five with no real kind of clear path to to get back to Perth or to, to not be living in Port Hedland. And while, I, you know, I think with executive roles, you know, I still, I really enjoyed my job, but I think when you kind of done your three, four, five years, I think there's always the point where it's it's a good opportunity for somebody else to have a go. Like you've probably have made your contribution to that role, taking it from sort of C to D and it's somebody else's job to take it from D to E. So it's really a combination of family decision to to want to live somewhere else. Um, and, and at the time, BHP had a pretty um, serious sort of restructure globally. So um, they went away from kind of commodity-based businesses to geographic-based businesses and uh, what that meant was that the opportunities for me from where I was were that those started to get removed pretty quickly just because as the business flattened flattened down at the top um so we just sort of took a view look um if we you know if I'm going to go do something else it's probably a decision to leave the industry at least for a period mm-hmm. um and I'd, I'd mucked around with the you know I mean that in the genuine sense like literally mucked around with the idea of doing something completely different um on my own not with a big corporate 
And it was kind of one of those points in, in life, Richard, where it was sort of like, this is the time to do it. Like if, I, if I'm going to actually make a, yeah, a, a big career change and, and do something on my own, uh, now's the time. And if I'm not going to do it, I should stop mucking around with it. Um, so that was kind of the forcing mechanism. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a decision. And it wasn't a decision to um, to go into training per se. It was actually more I, I wanted to get involved in a, in a small, medium-sized business that could scale, um, had the potential to scale, and then sort of put my effort towards towards doing that. Yeah, I, I note from your LinkedIn profile that 2015-16, uh, you did a grad cert of leadership management. And uh, a lot of people who do MBAs are equivalent uh, it really is a catalyst to have a big step change in their career. It certainly was for me uh, when I did one back in 2002, 2003. So had you gone into that qualification thinking it was going to lead you to this new entrepreneurial, you know, Matt uh, 2.0, or was did that come as a result of that? Uh, this, the latter. So it's very much the right. catalyst I, um, I enrolled in the, uh, and that was at Melbourne Business School, the exec MBA program there, which I loved. Like I had, had such a good time and learned so much. Um, but it was the way that program runs, or certainly ran at the time, is there's about 40 people in the cohort and you stay together as a cohort all the way through. And it's an executive model, so you're together for a week every couple of months, type of thing. And in that cohort, there was no more than three people from any industry. So it was highly diversified. They had sort of lawyers, um, uh, government type people, uh, medical people, some engineers, some mining people. So it's it really, really diverse. And within that cohort, well, probably about a quarter of them were um, sort of entrepreneurial types. So mm-hmm. started business. We're trying to do what I'm, I'm trying to do now, and that kind of really planted the seed as you, you're spending time with these people and, and asking questions and learning why they're doing what they're doing and what some of the challenges are, and so I guess some of the exciting things as well. So it's much more for me. To come back to your question, it was, it was more about I went there with the ex- expectation of being better at my job with BHP and uh, and actually kind of came away from it with a, you know, a catalyzed to go do something completely different. Yeah, so I think that uh, a lot of companies need to wake up to the fact that they sponsor their executives to go and do these courses and then they all leave because uh, I did executive MBA and, you know, so many of the people, I, I agree with you, it was fantastic experience, a great cohort and amazing uh, network of people. So many of them have uh, now gone on to do radically different careers. Um, and so when you came out of that VTS, was that a startup or did you acquire an existing business? How? What was the story there? Yeah, so so it wasn't a startup. It was an existing business, but very, very small. Mm-hmm. So what it, what it really, I think there was there was only two two permanent employees at the time and then a handful of sort of contractors that were very casual in nature. Uh, but what it did have was a really good set of state government funding contracts for Western Australia. So really, like when you kind of go, apart from uh, our two people, one of which is still with us, um, sort of eight years on, uh, it, it was the funding contracts is the asset that you're buying. And I, and I kind of just looked at it and thought, well, you know, these these funding contracts tend to have um, sort of the no- number of places that you can have annually. And I was looking at it going, they, they were utilised hardly at all. And, and so that became the job is like, all right, well, how would we go about, you know, the framework's all there. How do we go about utilising those, those, those places and training more people through those funding contracts and, and building up to do that? And so that became the job really for the, the first sort of three or four years. And I, I won't I won't lie to you, like year one was like, oh no, what have I done? You know, it was uh, it was yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty grim. Like and I, and I just made, yeah, I think 
pretty standard new guy mistakes when you get into business with this sort of stuff. Like I just thought everything would be a lot quicker than it really was and you could do stuff a lot quicker. Um, and so year one was pretty tough. Year two was also tough, but you could see the you could see the plan was going to work. And then from sort of three, four onwards, it's been yeah, everything's come together really nicely. And uh, and and now you know when uh, sort of Tom, my business partner, came on board, you could see that really open up in terms of he's got some skills that I don't have in terms of some of the M and A type work. And uh, and and that's yeah, so our opportunities have really opened up nicely since then. Okay, great. So let's unpack that a little bit. So how did the opportunity first even appear on your radar? Uh, you weren't particularly looking at training or you were looking for a training business to acquire or how did that all come about? Yeah. So, so I wasn't, I mean, I, I've always had a fondness for the training sector, but I wasn't looking exclusively at, at training related companies. Um, I, I kind of had some, you know, some basic criteria that you, you would need to have uh, in terms of how much you're prepared to pay for the business and what it needs to generate and those kinds of things. Uh, and then I had some, I was pretty clear on what I didn't want to be doing. Um, so I had a big list of not interested in these types of companies and then everything else was kind of, you know, a fair game, I suppose, was, was, was the way I looked at it. Um, and had a really close look at uh, four different companies. They were, they were from four quite different sectors um, and got into due diligence on, offering due diligence on two of them and ended up as the more I, the more I learned about training and about the vocational training space in particular and how it works, and it's a very complex space in a lot of in a lot of ways. But the more I learned, I could just see that that opportunity and, and what you the potential of what you could do with this company became clearer and clearer, and um, and the potential actually bigger and bigger the more I looked at it. So that was that was sort of the way way we went in the end. And was your business partner involved from day one, or did he sort of step in a little bit down the track? No, Tom Tom came on board a little bit down the track. Um, so so I, I I sort of stepped into VTS completely on my own. Um, and then about, so that was 2016 and then around 2019, 2020, I, I met Tom and, um, and he, he has some other business interests and interestingly, I mean, not to speak for him, but they were, uh, he, him and his other partners were looking for an RTO mm -hmm. and, uh, and the reason they were looking was they were so frustrated with the lack of quality training mm. for their company. And so they, they almost sort of thought, well, we should do it ourselves. That was kind of the, the way they were thinking. So that was how I came to meet Tom as Tom was interested in, um, sort of using VTS for for their um, their needs and their other business, and and that sort of um, I guess those, those sort of relationships sort of yeah build their own course in a way, and and after sort of about six seven months, we agreed to do something together. But it was actually not like what we agreed to do together wasn't what either of us thought at the start when we started having those conversations. So it's something that evolved over time. And so when he came into the business, uh, just thinking through timelines, so it was probably about. 2019 20 yeah it was uh we, we we first met up um probably end of 19 so it's before coded right okay so at that stage you're still the single business vts so was the desire right from the get-go when he became involved that you were going to acquire what you call a house of brands or uh was that the strategy or again was that just happenstance no that that was the concept so so we we yeah, over probably a few months, we'd sort of caught up a few times and kind of framed up this idea of, okay, how would you can grow organically, which VTS was sort of well on the way to that, that was happening quite well and we had a good trajectory there. And, and then it was um, more about, okay, well, do you keep doing that? Do you sort of keep investing in this one this one organisation to grow or do you actually have a look at um, maybe the better way to do it is to have a, you know, a series of RTOs 
um, or series of training companies under under you know under one head company but operating under their own banner. So I wouldn't call it a a full blown strategy, Richard. Like we 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 hadn't done the work to figure out exactly how we'd pull that off and what was going to be important and necessary. But the concept um, that was the concept from the start. So what is the benefit of doing it that way versus organic, do you think? Well, I think there's probably two dimensions to that. I mean, obviously, you can grow your footprint and um, grow your business quicker in an acquisitive way than you can yeah, just sort of organically growing. The The other piece is you can, I mean, and we see some real value in this in some, in some uh, areas is, if you wanted to get into a completely new area of training, like any RTO can go and get on its scope of registration, this new area of training, and you, you hire the trainers and you set all the materials up and you go for it. But it takes a long time and you're probably not going to be very good at it. Mm -hmm. sort of, so so we're, we're quite comfortable with um, investing in organic growth within within the remit of the, of the RTO as it currently stands. But if we were looking at something left field or a different industry sector, then that's probably more likely to be an acquisition for us. We'd rather go and partner with a, you know, a business that's already in that space, knows the space, has experienced staff from that industry sector, and then help you know, play our role, I suppose, in helping them grow from there and develop and improve. Mm -hmm. And so is the intention to uh, rebrand so that you've got a consistent brand or you'll keep three very distinct brands? No, we will keep a yeah, very distinct brands. Um, look at and kind of my, my philosophy here is I, I think RTOs are at their best when they're in their niche. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, niche is defined by what you what you train, like what is your offering, um, where you do it, and what industries you do it for. You know? And and so I, I that's my belief. Um, not not saying it's, it's, it's right or factual, but that's just what I believe. I, I think RTOs are at their best when they're in their niche and they can really focus on doubling down on what they do well. Um, but we equally we we kind of um, would prefer not to have a niche business either. So we so I guess the challenge, the goal we set ourselves here is how do we how do we build, you know, a, a really you know significant and impressive training organisation, but to do it through a I guess a collection of operating companies that are right at home smack bang in the middle of their niche and are kind of really good in, in that space. So that's the goal. And I guess with that model in mind, that lends itself much more to a, you know, sort of a house of brands or individually branded companies mm -hmm. rather than a singular sort of consistent brand. And in terms of your sort of shared services model, are you looking at uh, ways to have one back office engine room that supports all three or are you keeping that quite separate as well? No, so that so that's the I think the crux of the challenge, right? It's is how do you um, how do you scale a training business well? And what I mean by well is a, it's a well performing business, but actually the quality of what you do is maintained at the very least, or preferably improved as you grow. Mm -hmm. right? And that's pretty hard to do. I, I think um, I, I don't see many success stories in the market doing that. It usually goes the other way as you, as you grow, and I think this is the case for probably a lot of different businesses, not just RTOs. But as you grow, you, you, you actually, it becomes harder to, to be sort of really, really good at what you do. So that's a challenge for us. All right, how do we, how do we grow a, you know, a nice sort of training group of training companies, but have those individual companies be awesome in terms of quality and service delivery? And part of, part of the equation here is, well, what can we take off them that they don't have to do? Mm -hmm. So what can we remove from the day-to-day the -day life and, and, and bandwidth of, the leader of that business and then of a particular 
um, subsidiary business and their teams. So they just don't have to worry about it, right? So we, you know, the obvious things, are, you know, sort of IT management, um, you know, payroll accounts, all of that, and that back office stuff that you refer to. How do, yeah, how do we pull that away? Manage that as a big company would, like pro proper systems, proper processes, good consideration of insourcing, outsourcing, and how to do that. And not, but the goal is actually. To, to do it in a way where the, the leader of the operating company doesn't have to worry about that stuff. It mm -hmm. just gets done and they can spend all their time focused on what services are they, they're delivering, are their clients happy, are their staff engaged, and are they profitable in the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so do you see in the future your house of brands extending beyond RTO into you know perhaps other professional services areas or you're still very much wanting to keep it within that RTO orientation? Look, I think the answer is it, it, it could, um, but it's certainly not a near-term or even a medium-term consideration for us. So, so look, our, our, our plans at the moment sort of in early 2024 is we, we really want to sort of consolidate um, uh, you know, the, the opportune professional development acquisition, make sure that's nice and stable. We've got a bunch of work to do on systems and platforms to, to really sort of operate as a group rather than and, and pull those shared services up. Uh, and then I, I think our next acquisition, um, whenever that will be ready, will be, you know, that'll be another RTO. Right. Um, beyond that, it's certainly possible. Like, like there, there's certainly allied allied sectors that kind of work. They're still in the vocational education training sector, but aren't necessarily RTOs. So um, there's lots of examples of that. So, so it really come down to kind of strategy for us around, well, how do we provide, you know, a better quality outcome for our clients, so clients being our corporate clients and our students, and if there was a way to do that that was compelling, that needed something that was more than an RTO or different from an RTO, then we'd certainly, certainly uh, consider that. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, your business 2016 to now, a huge portion of that time we were in COVID. And, uh, and obviously, you've come out of that strongly and uh, to the point where you've been able to make these two acquisitions post-COVID. So, you know, what was the... Uh, what was the learnings for you during that COVID experience and um, how did that benefit or detract from the business? Well, first thing I'd say is you, you guys on the East Coast were in COVID. We were over in WA pretty uh, pretty sheltered from the, the whole thing, to be honest. <laughs> um, and when I, you look back at it, it was in, in, through the WA lens um, in, in Western Australia, there it, it felt like a, a long, at the time, it felt like a long period because mm. It was unknown, like in terms of what was going to happen. And everybody in the world thinks feeling the same way. When I look back at it for Western Australia, it was about eight weeks. Mm -hmm. It was the reality. An eight-week period where things were difficult and, um, you know, uh, certain companies couldn't operate and all that kind of stuff. And, and obviously for us, that that meant that, you know, generally one, one of kind of three things happened. Um, our, our clients um, shut their own doors, so they weren't open for training. Or they remained open, but they actually dropped a lot of their trainees. You know, they were just sort of preparing themselves for a longer, longer winter, as such. Um, or um, companies didn't do those things, but they just decided, look, I'm just going to focus on my core business. Like it became, I mean, COVID is obviously all-consuming in terms of you know how, how do you manage your business through that. And sometimes, you know, training is like one of the easy things to go. Well, it's not unimportant, but we just don't need to worry about it right now. Mm -hmm. So it's. As a consequence of that, our our training volume or our student volume just plummeted and went, went sort of close to zero. But literally eight weeks later, we were back at the same level. Um, so it really snapped back very very quick in WA. And then what what sort of happened is we we had a period where really it was, you know, um, 
very little impact at all for about 12 months. And then we had another kind of dose of it, you know, in, uh, in early 2021, which knocked us around a little bit for a couple of weeks and then we were sort of back into it. So, so we were pretty, um, pretty fortunate, uh, being where we are. And I think, I think Australia generally is pretty fortunate where it is, but certainly WA very, very kind of, um, protected from, from the COVID experience that others have had. Uh, so yeah, so look, let's come back to your question though. We, we basically spent 2020 and into early 2021 making sure the core business was okay and was going to be able to operate through COVID and beyond. Uh, and then we just really got on with it. I suppose we started thinking about, we, we knew um, in 2021, we knew that we'd want to do an acquisition and we started to kind of figure out how do we, how do we look for one sensibly. Um, you know, you can certainly go, there's plenty of broker sites you can go to and, and find stuff that's advertised. But our, our experience so far, sort of two acquisitions in, is actually... If you can find a company that you like with a, a seller that is of a similar value set to you and you can work together on a transaction, that's usually a much, in our experience, that's been a better outcome than trying to sort of work with a company that is technically, you know, for sale up mm-hmm. in lights. Um, and and our, our view of things is, is like when we, when we acquire, we try to do, the, you know, we only acquire stuff that we already really like, so we're not interested in fix-up fix up type jobs. We mm-hmm. actually want to company that we can we can add to and, and help you know help support to grow um and sometimes that's about you know um having some some, some more resources to enable it to grow uh it's about you know probably risk appetite sometimes as well like we've got a you know on some things we've got zero risk appetite so things like compliance and licensed operate no no risk appetite whatsoever but beyond that like commercially we probably do have a different risk appetite to some other rco owners and then we'll have a crack at some things and, and sometimes they don't work and that's okay um, so if we, yeah, that, that's been our experience is we'd, we'd much prefer to find a, you know, you know, an owner of an RTO that's of a similar value set and then see if where there's a way that we can work together. And, and now, now, you know, to be honest, there's always more than one solution to those, those sorts of transactions as well, depending on what people's drivers are and what they need and, and, and how we work together. Sure. So how does an opportunity, an opportunity is a, a- and like opportune come along, uh, because I mean, they're on the other side of Australia. Uh, you're not using brokers to identify these opportunities for those people who are perhaps listening, who aren't living in Australia. I mean, Perth to Sydney is a, a long distance. So are you tripping over these people at conferences or ha- how do they come on your radar? So we, with respect to opportune, um, yeah, we, we we heard about Opportune, uh, didn't really know much about them, and uh, had an initial conversation with uh, with Rachel, who who was the owner at the time, and uh, and we, as we started to understand the business, we we found we really liked it, and and what was what was good for us is we wanted our our next acquisition at that time to be an East Coast mm-hmm. business. A couple of things that sort of are difficult. Obviously, um, Tom and I are both West Coast based, um, young families. We don't want to be spending every second week on a plane over to, over to Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne or wherever. Um, so so whatever we took on had to be able to kind of operate sort of on its own, like without without sort of close management attention from either of us. Um, and then, the yeah, we we're very keen on an East Coast business because we, we wanted to grow that way. And then to the point we were talking about sort of when to organically grow versus acquisition, our view was, look, for East Coast, we don't know much about it. We don't have strong networks there. Um, the, you know, in, in RTO land, the funding rules are really set by the states, state governments. So we didn't have good insight into all of that. So it's kind of would have been would have been probably pretty risky to do anything other than acquire 
a mm. company that already well-established, well-set management team in place uh, and a supportive, I guess, exiting owner that um, that wanted to stick on for, for a little bit and make sure that we did it really well and did it properly with us and the team. Um, so that's kind of what, what excited us about, about Opportune. Um, and they, they've got, you know, funding contracts in most states in Australia, so it created that national footprint. Um, so we, we first, well, it's funny, like when we first spoke to Rachel, we were still betting in the Train West acquisition. So we said, look, we really like the company, but kind of, you know, um, we're not ready. But like was she did. was she looking to be acquired at that time? Or was it uh, something that evolved after you got to know each other? Oh, look, I think she probably had half of her mind thinking about that, but it was certainly the, the, the nature of that transaction evolved very much after we'd spent a fair bit of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we kind of had some initial conversations. Rachel was in Perth for a bit. There was a, um, a, a vet conference over in, uh, in Queensland, which we arranged for both of us to go to so we could spend some, got to meet some of her team over there as well, um, including, including Julie. Uh, so that was, I, I would say she was interested in doing something, but what that something ended up looking like was the product of a, a bunch of conversations right. and discussion, really kind of, I guess, mutual respect for what each of us were trying to do and what was important to each of us. Fair enough. And so Train West, Train West 2022, Opportune 2023, uh, as we're speaking, it's nearly the end of February 2024. So looking out into the future, you know, one of the things that you're excited about for the business, you know, perhaps over the next 12 months and then beyond that? Yeah, look, um, so look, we're really excited around, I, I think the future, if I take a big picture view, I think the, the future of VET um, vocational training in Australia is extremely bright. Um, the I, I kind of look at where governments have been investing their, their education and training funds and it's historic. The last decade has been very much towards universities and probably the, the vocational training in the TAFE sector has been, you know, um, the unloved sort of half of, of, of the education sphere. I don't, I think there's still challenges to that, but I don't see any way that that doesn't get addressed because you look at what, what does the country need in terms of skilled workers and what, what does that sort of demographic profile look like? And it doesn't look like a lot of people coming out of uni mm. is the reality. Um, and there still will be a need for some of that, but it's out of balance at the moment. And, you know, I, I, I get to speak to quite a few people that are at uni. We've had a few interns in the business, and that's kind of actually the student's view as well. It's like, what am I really getting out of this um, when I go to the university route? So I think big picture, um, the vet sector is looking very bright. There's definitely some challenges in terms of um, sort of federal state government alignment and how to get the priorities right and some of the funding settings and those sorts of things. But if you kind of look through that, um, I, I think it's it's shaping up very very well. So we're we're excited to a be just be a part of that and b to probably try and grow into that. So as that as that sector grows and moves and the priorities for, for the country sort of shift around over over the next decade, you know we see heaps of opportunity for our company to participate in that and to provide provide solutions in that space. So that that's that's pretty exciting. I, I think the other piece that certainly excites me is is how we how we actually go about constructing what we're trying to build mm-hmm. um, so it, it's you know you can sort of go and acquire stuff and bash it together and hope it works that's not not what we'd like to be doing like we actually want to build a really really good high-performing company that's sustainable over the long term mm-hmm. um, and I think to do that like we spend a lot of time thinking about things like some of your questions right what's the branding strategy here how does that need to work um, what, what are those shared services that we would provide across the group and 
yeah, there's some easy ones to pick out there to go, we're going to do this, this, and this. But there's also some way it's actually not quite that simple. Like, um, so business development is an interesting one. Like, how do you, what, what of that do you centralize versus actually leave to your RTOs that are in their niche mm-hmm. who already have relationships to actually do a bit of that as well? So it's not, I don't think it's as simple as saying binary, you know, this task is here, this task is here. There, there's going to be some, some areas where we need to kind of go, well, where do we define the boundary? And, and how does the sort of the head company work collaboratively with the operating companies so that we get good outcomes across the board? So that's, that's, that's a big, big organisational development exercise really in, in some ways. And I, I find that quite, quite interesting. And I know, you know, if we can get that right, that's, in, in my experience anyway, that's been one of the pieces that bigger companies tend to get wrong. You know, so if we can put the work and get that right, I actually think it sets us on a, a really nice trajectory. And so do you look, uh, if you're saying that, Traditionally, the bigger companies within your space aren't particularly good at that. Are you looking at examples from other industries or other geographies at what they're doing and saying, how can we bring that into our business um, and turn that into our best practice? Yeah, correct. Um, so, look, this has been a bit of a learning for me personally. So I, I came out of, you know, BHP, so, yeah, you know, probably the biggest company in Australia, right? Um mm-hmm. And, and I was determined not to, yeah, and, yeah, and in a company like BHP, you, you do have bureaucracy and some of that's absolutely necessary and some of it is maybe not so much. Um, but I was sort of really determined to go, well, I'm not going to do that. Like we're not going to replicate this bureaucracy and we're going to be really lean and agile. And, then as, and that was kind of fine early. But as we're starting to grow now, I can sort of look back and go, gee, there, there's, some, there's some structure and process in that company that's pretty good. Like it's... Uh, and we shouldn't sort of just discount it because it's seen as, you know, in quotes, bureaucracy. Um, there's actually some good stuff in there. So so we're, we're looking um, now both, both in, in RTOs or in the vocational sector, but very much um, outside of that sector to go, well, how would you do this for, you know, we're, we're a company that sort of will we'll be probably about 150 people by the end of the year. You know, in two or three years' time, we could be five, 600 people. So so how, how do you sort of set this up in a way and, and get that that appropriate level of of governance and process in place without um, without sort of going too far one way or the other. Yeah, I've, certainly my experience of starting my own company, having looked at what was happening in the organisations I worked for and going, oh, this is dumb and why did they make this call? And and uh, and then you come into your own business and suddenly, well, it's all up to you, isn't it? And, uh, and it's very easy when you're an employee to uh, be critical. Then when you've got to build it for yourself, Suddenly you go, oh, actually, um, maybe I should. I was too hard on those people. Maybe actually <laughs> they had the right thinking there, and uh, and I'm the idiot. But uh, oh, look, uh, you know, my business is uh, we're at about ten people now, and uh, I tell you what, Matt, uh, I'm 55, and the, the the biggest challenge is just leading. It's just leadership, in my opinion. Um, you know, the idea of having 150 uh, employee business, which obviously you do. I mean, how do you? How do you engender a culture that you enjoy leading? And, uh, you know, what are some of the things that make um, your businesses a great place to work? Yeah, it's um, it, it's both fun and challenging, I reckon, the, the leadership piece. And I'd say that probably about anywhere I've worked. Um, I enjoy it. I genuinely enjoy it. But it's not without the odd day where you just want to, you know, throttle someone or, or, or you're kicking yourself <laughs> pretty hard. Yeah. Um, so what, look, we, we've got an interesting sort of situation now where we've got sort of three quite separate companies, um, three, I would say, distinctly different cultures. But what's really interesting is when you run a line through those three cultures, there's 
way more that's the same than is different, right? Um, but the, the language that's used might is different from company to company, but they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about the importance of, you know, looking after our students, supporting our students, the importance of making sure that if we promise something to a client that we do whatever we have to do to deliver on that. So they, they use different language, or that's what I hear anyway. I hear different language, but they're actually saying the same thing. Mm. So part of it, and look, we're not we're not there yet, right? But part of our challenge, I think, for the next you know for twenty twenty four is is how do we sort of really crystallise and and um and make clear what it means to work in say BTS or Trainwest or Opportunity Professional Development, but have this kind of higher level alignment in what it actually means to be part of the Keystone Training Group. Um, and I, I don't think that'll be particularly hard because I can kind of see it. Like I can actually see the areas of commonality and they're all the things that you want, right? They're all, all really good. But bringing, putting sort of words around those or kind of being able to state that in a way that everybody can understand, that's probably the conversion that we need to do and, and translate that along. Uh, so I think that's challenging. I, I think the other bit is, you know, we've got... Um, you know, across that group of staff, we've got those staff are, are everywhere, right? So we've got um, staff, obviously a, a, a cluster of staff in Perth, right, with the two WA businesses being headquartered here. But um, we've got people in Sydney and Brisbane and Sunshine Coast and Hobart. Uh, we've got staff member in Adelaide. Uh, we've also got people in far north Western Australia, so sort of Broome and Kununurra and places like that. So we've actually got... Um, of all of our team, you, you probably wouldn't find more than maybe a third of them in one particular place. Mm-hmm. The rest are for Australia, so that that kind of adds a, I think, an extra challenge is how do you how do you lead you know a um, distributed and a remote workforce, and that that isn't easy. Um, it's certainly much easier when you've got them all in one spot and you can kind of talk to everybody. Uh, but again, I think it just becomes about well, what are the systems and the processes that we need to plan for and put in place so that. Everyone in our organisation is getting the, the communication to the level that they need. Uh, they're getting the right the right information at the right time, um, and we're able to provide, yeah, particularly those those areas where we don't have a lot of staff. How do we support those staff, given that they're not part of necessarily a much bigger group? How do we sort of wrap wrap that around and, and make sure they're uh, they're well engaged? Issues that they have are understood, and we can send support or provide additional support as needed. Yeah, you know, that's a challenge for us at the moment. Don't have the answer, but um, we're sort of along the path of trying to work it out. Yeah, again, you know, this COVID experience, certainly for my business, uh, uh, the fact that we're now so comfortable communicating on Zoom and Teams means you can have a a much more broadly uh, dispersed um, team, uh, which is fantastic, but certainly it it has its unique challenges as well. So uh, I completely appreciate what you're navigating there. And so, Matt, appreciate you're a busy guy and you've got plenty to get on with. Before we wrap it up today, so tell us a little bit about, you know, What's Matt when he's not at work? What are the kind of things that you enjoy? I know you told me uh, uh, you've got a couple of younger kids, and uh, so no doubt that takes up a lot of time. But what else uh, floats your boat? Yeah, so look, the kids thing, uh, as we talked about, my kids are 11 and, and 8, uh, Avery and Quillen. Uh, like we, that, that occupies a lot of time. And, and But it's also, I don't, I actually really enjoy that. And like, I mean, I was talking to you before about the basketball tournament yesterday that my daughter was at. I mean, I, I had a fantastic time. I just, it's, it's buzzy. It's a sport that I really enjoy seeing kids engaged in it. It's just great fun. Um, so that takes up a lot of time and, and, and is really enjoyable. I mean, other things, you know, we like to travel a little bit and haven't probably done a lot of that. Uh, well, certainly outside of local sort of WA travel, um, just through the last few years. And that's a combination of the COVID stuff and just being, Difficult to travel, but also with my, my youngest, he's um, he was probably a little bit young for any extended travel. 
Um, and support. you've just started a business. <laughs> and and look, hey, we've got we've got a few things on the on the agenda as That's well, Richard. Right. The thing <laughs> we're not sitting on our hands. So yeah. uh, enjoy all of that. And um and look, the uh you know, um watching a bit of sport on the weekends with your mates as well is also okay. Yeah, not, not a couple of hours. So where's the next family holiday to? If you could go overseas, what's uh on the bucket list? Uh, so don't know quite where I'd like to get somewhere in Southeast Asia around July. So okay. you've got, you know, last year, not, not that the winters are particularly tough in Perth, but it is nice just to get somewhere warm for a week in that kind of school holiday break. So, yeah. um, we're, we might head up to the Thailand or Vietnam, right. um, Vietnam and go have a look there. Uh, and, and to be honest, I mean, there's other stuff in, in Australia I'd like to do, but my youngest has never been overseas. So I'm feeling yeah. a bit guilty. In fact, his older sister has had all these opportunities, and he's sort of the COVID kid with no no overseas travel. So we need to actually get him a passport and get him get him out of the country somewhere. Yeah, well, I again, I just took my two kids uh, to Vietnam at Christmas for seventeen days. They'd never been to Asia, and my daughter had never really been overseas, and uh, it, they loved it. Uh, Vietnam's a great place. People are beautiful. The food's delicious. It's relatively inexpensive, but it's busy. I mean, the, I, I've never seen. I've been there before a long time ago, but if you can imagine one city block in Perth and there's 500 people on scooters and nobody is paying any attention to anybody else. They just want to go where they're going to go. And ah, oh, it is uh, 17 days was a bit long. By about day 13. What could, day what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh my God. By about day 13, it's like, I need to go. I need to have some space where I can actually uh, uh, breathe again. Oh, that sounds awesome, Matt. Well, look, uh, uh, again, really appreciate your time and look, good luck with everything. And I know that we uh, uh, will be watching to uh, cheer from the sidelines as your business grows and all of these future acquisitions and uh, global domination. But uh, have a fantastic afternoon and uh, great to talk to you today. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate the opportunity. No worries. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Trinks. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.